case. Um, thanks, Ksenia. When Linji was about to die, he entrusted Sasheng with his dharma and said, after my passing, do not destroy my treasury of the eye of the true dharma. Sunshing said, how would I dare destroy your treasury of the eye of the true dharma? Linji said, if someone asks you about it, how will you answer? Sunshang instantly shouted, cats! Linji said, who knows that my treasury of the eye of the true dharma has been destroyed by this blind donkey? We read last week about cats and it's, it, you, can, you can go to Wikipedia and find out more about it, but it's, it means shout. Oh, okay. Milan is here. Yay. So he shouted, shout? No, he shouted, yeah. And they made that the connection to. Uh, it's similar to Kia. Hi, Milan. Hello, Milan. Hello. Hola. Hola. <laughs> Are you back? No. <laughs> okay. Well, welcome. Uh, were you, I can't remember. Were you here last week? I don't think so. Right? No, I was not here. Oh, okay. Why doesn't someone else read the case then for Milan? And then we'll, um, we'll read this one paragraph that <coughs> clarifies. Can I just ask a question about sure. this? Sure. Yes. Is Linji calling Sunsheng a blind donkey? Yeah, and I think that will get be clear by what we read. Okay. The, okay. The paragraph. Um, because some of the stuff we read about blind donkeys and Buddhism was a negative thing, but this other thing we're going to read sounds more positive, and you don't know. I don't know to what extent um, he's kind of just being a cranky old guy and making you know a joke. <laughs> as opposed but that's the interpretation i think that we'll read who'd like to read it well i can read it okay thank you case when linji was about to die he entrusted sunshine with his karma and said after my passing do not destroy my treasury of the eye of the true dharma sunshine said how would I dare destroy your treasury of the eye of the true dharma? Linji said, if someone asks you about it, how will you answer? Sunshine instantly shouted, cuts. Linji said, who knows that my treasury of the eye of the true dharma has been destroyed by this blind donkey? The end. Okay, now we'll go to this, uh, this, this, just this one paragraph. And Nanda cuts, it's, it's a similar to ki, ki yao in, in, the, in the martial arts. Right. You know, they go for some kind of movement and they scream. So this, this, this is the, 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 the thing. Okay. Okay, who'd like to read this? I can read it. Okay. Uh, Wick's comment. In the Zen tradition, the first instance of Dharma transmission was when Shakyamuni Buddha said, I have the all-pervading true Dharma I. Now I give it to Mahakashyapa and thereby acknowledged Mahakashyapa as his successor. The true Dharma I is the reality of what is, but as soon as you think about it, it's something else. The true Dharma I is unborn and undying and cannot be extinguished. Master Linji died young at the age of 55, but the school he founded continues to thrive. His Dharma has been transmitted through the generations to this day. This is another sense in which the true dharma I has not been extinguished. Extinguished transmission in Zen does not rely on letters, but is transmitted outside the scriptures, from teacher to student, 
because the experiential fact of the truth does, does not belong to the realm of logic and intellect, though it does not exclude it either. Because the transmission is always from teacher to student, there can be no self-proclaimed masters in Zen. Each generation vows to his or her teacher to not let his or her truth harma I be extinguished. Anyone? Shall I continue? Onandia, do you want to read? Um, Mille. Okay. Oh, Linji is not criticizing Sanshan by calling him a blind donkey, but in fact, this is very high praise indeed. Here, to be blind means to manifest the state of no I, the state of the heart sutra describes as no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. When you manifest the state, there is no separation between you, the act of seeing, and the object seen. Not deceived by intellectual conundrums, delusion, con, conundrums, mm -hmm. delusions, knowledge, preoccupation, and attachment. The blind donkey is a liberated person who maintains the heart of not knowing not seeing. Sanxing says, how could I let it be extinguished? But tell me, how could you extinguish something that's unborn and undying? Oh, that's pretty profound. I, I really like that. Okay, now yeah. we're going to go to uh, Rev Anderson. Let's see where he is. Kim, who, who wrote that last piece of writing? Oh. All I know is it's Wix. With, okay. There's different comments here, and I don't know who Wix is. I take it. It's not a contemporary person, but someone long ago. Hmm. But I that's all I I don't know. Okay. Okay, let's read in alphabetical order. And so Emily is first. A full expression, full recognition, a conversation on Zen and stories with Reb Anderson by Barbara Gates and West Nisker. Fenshin Reb Anderson left advanced study in mathematics and Western psychology to practice Zen with Master Shunru Suzuki, who ordained him as a priest in 1970. In 1983, he was made Dharma lineage holder, and in 1986, he became abbot of the three Zen center locations at Green Gulch Farm, San Francisco, and Tassajara Zen Mountain Center. He specializes in Buddhist philosophy and psychology and the relationship of Zen to the social and ecological crisis of our time. Reb Anderson took the inquiring mind on a delightful journey through tales and reflections, leaving us engaged and wondering. When we asked him how he first became interested in Buddhism, he told us the following story. I was introduced to Zen <clears throat> through the stories that were coming out in the mid-1950s, such as those collected by Paul Reps in Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. I think now particularly of one story about Haikuin, a Zen master of high repute who lived in a fishing village. A girl in the village 
got pregnant and told her parents that this monk was the father. The parents went and said to the monk, you are a terrible monk. How could you do this? You are a disgrace to your profession. Not only that you can take care of the kid. The baby was born. The girl's parents brought him to the monk. He took the baby and with great care raised him for two years. Then the girl finally told her parents that the monk wasn't her father, that some other young man from the village was the father. The parents went back to the monk, who by this time had lost his reputation. They highly praised him, and they said, We are so sorry, we know now that you didn't do this. And not only that, you didn't defend yourself and you took care of this baby. You are really a wonderful, compassionate Buddhist practitioner. And he said, Is that so? Then I read this story. I thought, that's the story of how I want to live my life. Do you see the circle? Is that so? Closes, closes the circle. So the story has the quality of completion, recognition. Moreover, they recognize how queen, and we want how queen to recognize us. If we live as he did, he will recognize us. So that is an important story to me and my practice. There are many other stories that come to play, then I need them. It's good to know those stories. Barbara Gates and Wes Nisker conducted the following interview with Rev Anderson at Green Gulch Farm at, in Murray Beach, California in November 1993. We're interested in how stories transmit Dharma. Could you tell us some stories and discuss how they work in the Zen tradition? Rev Anderson, let's begin with a dog story. I've raised a well, very well-behaved, long-haired, golden-colored Labrador Terrier Cross, a beautiful female dog. Since I didn't want her to have puppies, the first time she came into heat, I kept her inside the house. Contrary to my plan, there was something outside that she wanted to do. She kept trying to get out, and I kept bringing her back. Finally, one day, she got out and ran down the stairs ahead of me. At the beginning of the stairs, I saw all these male dogs. They could smell my dog in the house, and they were waiting for her. <clears throat> when she ran toward those dogs, I felt like I had lost control. Yet I still wanted to retain some control. I wanted to choose the dog with whom she would mate. I saw that there was one beautiful, big, white husky, and there was also an unattractive runt, a spotted, short-haired little guy. I wanted her to go to the husky, but she didn't. The little mongrel got her. Then I told my very well-behaved dog to come in the house. Now, you may know that once dogs get engaged, they can't disengage until they have finished. But I didn't know that at the time, so I told my dog to come in. When she came in dragging this little guy up the stairs, I had the same reaction you just had. I saw that I had gone too far. That's a story about me trying to control a living being who is trying to respond to my attempt to control. By responding to my attempt to control, she taught me how stupid I was to try to control such live process. The story closes itself. That's so funny because the same thing happened to me when I was walking my dog and another dog kind of hooked up and I couldn't do anything about it. And then we had six puppies. <laughs> okay. So next is I think it's Milan. Yes. Is it yes? Yes. Yes, the story uh, the story does close itself. And in listening to it, we participate in the closing. You didn't even have to add the moral. We got the point on our own on our own before you voiced it. And it went much deeper than if you have told us first. Right. Go on. Go on. Yeah. You made a face when you got the picture of my dog dragging the little guy up the stairs 
The look on your face was just how I felt, except you felt a little different from me because I felt ashamed and stupid. I learned something from that, but I didn't learn enough. And so there is a sequel which is related. This intercourse I described caused fertilization and pregnancy. When my dog was approaching the time to deliver the, her puppies, she started to swell and spread and various bloody fluids, fluids started to ooze out and all over the place. Usually they slept on my bed. Usually she slept on my bed, but during that time I made, made a separate bed for her in the kitchen. I imagined this stuff all over my bed, dry cleanings, bills, and so on. So I told my dog to stay in her bed in the kitchen. She could keep coping, coming into my bed and I could keep sending her back to the kitchen. Once again, I wanted some control. And again, I had the same obedient dog. When I told her to go back in the kitchen, she went back. But then, because she really wanted to be in my bed, she kept forgetting and she kept coming back again. One day when I came into my room, she was up on my bed on the pillows. I saw red stuff all over the white pillows. So then I got angry and kind of mean. And I said, get into your own bed. Obediently, she hopped down and went into her bed in the kitchen. And I went to clean up the mess. There behind the pillows, I found four little puppies. It was then that I realized how stupid I had been again. And I invited my dog back up onto the pillow. Someone take away the dog from the guy. <laughs> Please. <laughs> uh, Emily, I think you're next. The moral is the same moral, but there's something additional. I was deeply touched by her trust in and obedience to me. If she had stood by her puppies and not obeyed me, I wouldn't have felt quite as embarrassed and I wouldn't have learned what I learned. The fact, I don't know about that, but okay. The fact that she would abandon her own puppies at my instruction, that she would go against her instinct to do what her master said, showed me much more, how much more stupid I was and how much more noble she was. It's a great lesson. <clears throat> it again reminded me of the nobility of life and of the stupid stupidness of my attempt to control it. Sometimes life gets messy and sometimes you get the point that it's not about keeping your bed clean. It's about this thing going forward. Yet there is some play in it and some chance to learn. So training was involved in these two stories. Through language, <coughs> my dog entered formal training with me and I entered formal training with her. My dog learned how, upon instruction, to come into the house or to go to bed in the kitchen. Through my willingness, my dog's willingness to cooperate with me, I learned something about human control and obedience, about devotion and love. Likewise, in Zen training, I ask someone to do something and we go off together to struggle through the communication process until he or she actually understands what I mean. The training is mutual and there is a closure in the communication, a circle. When I tell you a story about how this closure in communication happens, you probably feel gratified in your mind to see the closure in that relationship. You can carry that story in your mind about how to close the circle of communication with other people. Isn't there a more formal, for, formal use of stories in Zen training? There are two phases in the full story of Zen practice. One phase is intraphysic. Interpsychic, I think. Intrapsychic, <laughs> thank you. Is what we call just sitting. Just sit and become intimate with yourself. You really work to come down to pure mindfulness. 
This phase is usually not mentioned in the stories, but should be understood. The next phase is interpersonal. It's called going to the teacher and discussing Dharma. You can go to the teacher and discuss Dharma before you've actually settled in order to get some instructions about how to settle. But once you sense that you have settled, you got to get reflection to see if the teacher will, will reflect your settling. You hope that your teacher has also been settling. So you have two people coming together who have settled on themselves, who then express the settledness. Settle, how do you say, settle that? Settledness. To each yeah, other. And recognize it in the other. There is no such thing as a Buddha by herself. The Buddha wasn't sitting alone under the bow tree. He was sitting with the tree, with the stars, and with all sentient beings. He was recognizing them and how they work, and they were recognizing him. A Buddha by herself is a Buddha that hasn't yet thoroughly realized Dhamma. In a sense, Buddha was not really Buddha until he started teaching. Buddha was somebody who had great insight, but when teaching, he showed that he could express his insight and recognize others who would express themselves and be recognized by him. So the second phase of Zen practice is this mirroring, and Zen stories are about that. These stories are not about somebody sitting by himself and having awakening. That happened before the stories happened, or else it didn't happen. And then the monk came, expressed herself, and the teacher said, in essence, go back and sit some more. Does, uh, does a monk alone in a cave ever use stories just to get himself settled? We need stories about how to let go and stories about how to sit down and stories about how to deal with ourselves. A Sufi story just popped into my head. In this story, a man was put in prison. When a friend of this prisoner sent him a prayer rug, he was not happy. He wanted something more along the line of a saw or a crowbar or perhaps keys. But given that he had a prayer rug, he figured he'd just have to use it. So he started bowing on the prayer rug. As he bowed, he became more familiar with the pattern woven into the rug. And finally, he started to see an interesting image in the pattern. As you may have guessed, it was the diagram of the lock. So this is a story that you can remember. If you like this story and it rings a bell in you, then when you are sitting in your meditation, you may realize that there is some pattern of bondage in your thought and see how it may be unlocked. Of course, this is your own story, right? You're sitting in your own stories. You watch your own stories and you watch your own stories, watch your story. You realize that there is some pattern there and the more you realize it, you see that your story is your way out of your story. So if you were sitting in a cave, the story of the prisoner and the prayer rug would encourage you to work with the story that you were living right then of your being in the cave. There are lots of stories, lots of lot of stories that you might use if you started wavering and losing enthusiasm. Other stories that say, oh no, stay here. When you would get angry or sleepy or depressed, hopefully you would have other stories about. Uh, each one of these things and if you didn't have the appropriate stories you would go to see your teacher and the teacher would then give you a story about how she had experienced that same thing or how she knew somebody else who had experienced it so you would go back and use the story to continue your meditation then once you felt as if your story had done its job when you would go to the teacher and say, 
say, I'm cooked, I'm done, and see if the teacher recognized you or gave you another story and sent you back for more work. I like how how uh, they um, reference teacher as her. Yes. Really amazing, actually, to hear it a lot. How does a koan differ from a story, or are they the same? Zen stories are koans, and koan liter literally means public case. In other words, it's out in the public. The stories are records of actual conversations, public examples of actual reality. Actual reality is realized when two people <coughs> completely express themselves and give reflection. The stories or koans help us understand these fundamental interactions between people. A lot of the Zen stories are showing that the teaching is both ways. <coughs> it's from the teacher to the disciple and from the disciple back to the teacher. And sometimes it's between two teachers that are both teaching each other. Here's an example from the Book of Serenity of a story between two Chinese Zen masters. Both are masters, but still one is the teacher of the other. <coughs> the other, the younger one, Sam Cheng, is the disciple of the older, Linji. When the older master, Linji, who is known for his shout, is about to die, the younger master is standing next to him. Linji said, when I die, please don't destroy my teaching. And his, <coughs> his disciple responds, how would I dare destroy the master's teaching? Linji says, after I die, if someone's asked you about my teacher, <coughs> asked you what my teaching is, what will you say? In response, Sam Sheng shouts. Linji says, who would have thought that my teaching would be destroyed by a blind ass? After that time, nobody ever again could, <coughs> could truly shout in that lineage. Everyone, everybody that shouted after that was said to be just copying the master. The shout that the younger master gave put an end to shouting. That's the story. Can you scroll one uh, row, please? Thank you. Thank you. If you study the story of Buddhism, then you know that in the living lineage, the new generations must destroy the previous generation. That's what keeps the lineage alive. In order to become a successor in Zen, you have to make the previous teacher obsolete. In this particular case, in order to transcend the teacher, the disciple used the shout, which was the teacher's speciality. If a student does something, a master does, but does it very differently, the master says, well, she's just got her own thing. But if she doesn't, but if she does the master's thing in almost the same way, but slightly different, then the master says, no. So in this story, the young master gives a great shout that leads to no more shouting. The older master responds, who could have thought that my teaching could have been destroyed by this blind ass? This is recognized as the Dharma transmission between them. Oh, that's a beautiful um Yeah. You. Very interesting take. So the story is saying that the tradition will be destroyed if it isn't destroyed. Exactly. A student can only be sure he has done something new when he draws blood. In this case, the older teacher is dying. And when his student yells at him, the teacher calls him a blind ass. Blood has been drawn. And at the same time, we know that the master's response is ironic. We know that this is the moment of transmission. Now there are other stories where the teacher says, this is my wonderful disciple. 
But mightn't that be ironic as well? Remember, ironic doesn't mean not so. It has a contradiction, a dynamic in it. If it were just the opposite, it wouldn't have that bite. So there's a lot more in the story than meets the eye. I imagine that there could be endless commentary on that final exchange. There is. In almost instantaneous interchanges such as this one, uh, there is a whole universe. Generation after generation can look at the few sentences between two masters and see almost all of Buddhist practice. In this story, and in the one I'm leading up to involving that same younger master and another senior master, the crucial teaching is about mutual recognition and mutual expression. In usual social interactions, people take turns. When I'm expressing myself, I take a little break and don't pay attention to you and recognize you. Or people take different roles. A lot of people are good at recognizing others, but they don't express themselves very well. Some people are good at expressing themselves and getting recognition, but they aren't good at listening to and recognizing others. But in Buddhism, if the teacher can't recognize the other, the process is dead. The place of reality is where you are both simultaneously connecting. And it is very difficult for human beings to stay in that place. We veer off to one side or the other to play in one of those roles because it is so intense and so paradoxical to be both fully expressing yourself and fully listening to the other. But that's, um, that's what these stories are about. Simultaneously meeting and making each other happen. It seems to me that in a lot of these stories, there's a subtle one-upmanship. Uh, Rev. Anderson, right. In the story I've been leading up to, it may look that way. After Sam Shang becomes Linji Rinzai's Dharma heir, he goes traveling around to visit all the great <coughs> Zen teachers in order to get recognition. It's as if he is saying, I'm the successor of this lineage. Do you recognize me? So he goes to visit another teacher, senior to himself, Zhu Feng, and says, when the wonderful, mysterious golden fish breaks out of the net, what will you feed him? Zhu Feng says, when you get out of the net, I'll tell you. <coughs> then Chen says, you are a teacher of 1,500 monks, and you don't even have some words that are appropriate. And then Zhu Feng says, I'm so busy about with my tasks as Abbot. Len? So, so first, the story is just a wall. Then, if you watch a little bit, you might see that Sang Shen is saying, I'm the goldfish that has broken out, broken out the net. I've broken out of the net of confusion, subject-object dualism, and so on. I'm a free fish. What are you what are you going to give me, teacher? It looks like the senior teacher is saying, You are telling me that you have attained this great freedom, and I don't think so. But when you do but when you do get out of the net, I will tell you. On that level, the hotshot young master seemed to be saying, here you are, the teacher of this great assembly, and you can't even say anything better than that. On the same level, one might understand the teacher to be saying, I'm too busy to make the effort even to make a good comment to a guy like you. It sure looks like a put down. It looks like a put down. 
But remember, in Zen stories, the most common rhetorical device is irony. In a certain sense, it is a put down, but that's not all. Let's review the story. The young guy challenges the older master to see him as equal by strongly expressing himself in a way that may sound arrogant. I am the wonderful, mysterious golden fish who has broken out of the net. But it is through this full, seemingly arrogant expression of himself that he shows his respect for the older master. Now it looks like the teacher puts him down, but actually the teacher does the same thing. He strongly expresses himself in a way that may sound like a put down. You aren't even out of the net yet. But it is through this full, seemingly insulting expression of himself that he shows his respect for the younger master. Yeah, so um, how, how does one know the difference between that and when the master is actually insulting him? Just a second. I'm going to message someone who just entered. Oh. Um, I'll say, please come back. Oh. Please come back. Oh, we're not meeting again now until um, January 8th. Yay. Everything stops. In the name of birth of Jesus. Oh, I put it 8 a.m. January 8th. That, that would, that's not smart. 7 p.m. So, Nandia or Emily, did you ask that how will it be different from the actual insult? Yeah, Nandia asked this. I was thinking maybe the true master would never insult anyone, like for real, <laughs> only when he's teaching something. Well, you would think that, but yeah, Zen masters. Well, pretty, I'm like idealistically looking at Zen masters. They're pretty scandaloso. <laughs> I don't know. Kim, exactly. Do That's why I like how to discern how to discern did you say yeah when it's like really an insult and when it's like a non-insult insult there's there's a great sense of humor i think um tonight at dinner so i'm playing with this idea of how one might respond if someone comes to you and says, I think, uh, I think capital punishment is a great thing. And so I tried it on my wife and she said, yes, even for parking tickets or something like that. You know, I thought that was such a beautiful response. Like, what are you talking about? You know, so um, I just love that. You mean to give an example minor offense uh, for? As well, she was, she was she was she knew how ridiculous the statement was coming from me, and rather mm -hmm. than just you know like feeding into that, she uh, she she went with it. Mm -hmm. So what could I say there? <laughs> yeah, parking tickets. Yeah. So you're always wondering, um, even with the term uh, blind ass or blind donkey, um, there's a double meaning there. When we, we There's some use as being <coughs> not something so great, so uh, a pretty negative thing. And so that's why, uh, and then it, it turns out to be true transmission, according to him and what we read earlier. So. So anyway, we're always on on our toes, you know, trying to figure this out, trying to, um, our, well, like like Rev Anderson says, 
is it a put down or, or, or is there a great respect between the two? And it seems to me, and what he's saying too, is that it ends up being uh, two masters who are really uh, kind of playing with each other and testing each other, but have great people who have great respect for each other. Yeah, here I agree, but Nandia is asking, for example, how how to differentiate if the Zen master is truly insulting or seemingly insulting for the purpose of a Zen education? <laughs> well, isn't it? Uh, if you isn't keep it the... everything they do is for purpose of like a realization? <laughs> kind of, yeah. I mean, it's an opportunity. You know, like, but that uh, can include putting a student in their place. Yeah. Right. If they if they're too close, like or what if he, they're what, overstepping without like the really understanding. So if they're overstepping, there is no uh, insult in this. No, it's just putting the student into uh, his place. We did. We didn't read yet the the, <coughs> the story of the master who holds up his finger whenever he stole the story have we oh uh, we did yeah we did read that yeah mm -hmm. oh well not today but the last week yeah yeah okay but it's the same thing so the master whenever he's he asked a question he holds up his finger so then the student <coughs> is asked a question and he holds up his finger the master cuts his finger off and then the student gets great enlightenment. Yes, immediately, instant, instant enlightenment. Yes. Um, and we were, I was just talking with, with five of my high school, my college friends, all of whom are artists and photographers. And, and we were talking about, uh, I'm sure Melen knows of him, Gary Winogrand, who was the teacher for two of them. And one was saying Gary Winogrand only liked work that, that his students did when it looked like his. <laughs> and uh, oh, so I don't I don't remember exactly. Uh, what, well, that's the imitation. And my teacher was completely the opposite. I mean, he would throw you out the window if you did work that looked anything like him. So there's that range. Um, Gary Winogrand, well, they said he was a fantastic teacher and they, they learned so much from him. So I'm not going to say anything negative about him, but but very different. I, and there was there's another story about uh, artists I know Milan knows of um, Hans. No, Hans Hoffman. De Kooning. No, it wasn't de Kooning a famous German expressionist. And uh, he, he was teaching at Washington University. He had a lot of trouble expressing himself in English. And so, uh, and a student was having a lot of trouble with her painting. And so his painting studio was in the next room. And so he dragged the, the student to the next room and pointed at his canvas and said, now just do this. <laughs> and uh, there was an older couple in, in St. Louis who had been around, this was in the 50s, I guess, who had been around when he was teaching there. Hmm. Max Beckman, that's it. Hmm. Now do this. That's and pr probably, probably in terms of the history of art, that's how masters were. Wouldn't you agree, Milan? They didn't want people to go far away from what they did. They learned to paint just like them, at least in their training, and yes. to paint paint the, the the unimportant parts of the painting. Especially because prior postmodernism, there were schools, so you have to be in accordance with the schools that you were being taught. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think we're here. And who's reading? I think I am. Okay. So the master's comment can be seen as a recognition of this young guy's chutzpah. 
these two might seem might be seen as expressing the heights of mutual compliments. They are. They complement each other through fully expressing themselves to each other. On still another level, the ironic way that they talk to each other suggests something else that is very important. No matter what you say, it can be a form of recognition. The reality of human meeting is that we do recognize other people and that we do express ourselves. This is the reality of dependent co-arising. We do actually create each other. At the place where we create each other, it's paradoxical. I create you, but you create me, and I can't create you unless you create me. It's amazing. So many teachings in this tiny exchange, and each story has its word of meanings. In the Zen community, these stories might be a great resource. How are they passed on? Commonly in Japan these days, Zen teachers will meet individually with the student and give him a story to meditate upon. Then the student returns to present his understanding again and again until the student and the teacher reach an accord. Teachers also present their understanding to groups in a form called Teisho, which literally means presenting the shout. <laughs> These presentations are not interactive. That is, the students do not express their understanding or ask questions, but just sit and listen to the teacher. We have also used these forms here, but in addition, we have developed a much more interactive way of sharing these stories in a group. Over a period of several years now, I have had a class with a group of students where we have been going through one, the 100 stories of the Book of Serenity and intensely studying them. In this last round of classes, we spend seven weeks on one story. We work with a story until I feel like the people are really using it in their meditation and I see it functioning in the community. Then I feel like we can go on to the next story. I don't keep doing it until I think everyone completely understands the story because I don't think there is ever an end <coughs> to this understanding. The more you study these stories, the more you realize how vast they are. So after weeks of discussion, the story takes over and actually starts to work as its own as its own teacher. Exactly. In the past, I follow a system similar to that followed by a lot of Rinzai teachers. They assign stories to people. The people are supposed to work on those stories until they get to a certain kind of understanding, which is standardized and checked in certain systematic ways. But I'm not following that system. In my approach, I'm systematic in the sense that I go straight through this book and I don't skip anything, but I am not systematic in checking understanding. My interest is in building a vocabulary with these stories in the community a vocabulary of how to talk, a vocabulary that helps us know how to relate to each other. This vocabulary teaches us how to assert ourselves and listen to others and enter into the very dynamic space which these stories are showing. I think Nandia is next. Nandia? Yeah, sorry. Um, I lost my place. In this class. Okay. In this class, the people in the room are a crucial resource. To begin each meeting, I say everybody's name, and then everybody else repeats their name. We start off by everybody recognizing everybody and everybody being recognized by everybody. This sounds like an AA meeting. 
That's fun. And in, in, uh, in Zen writing, when we sometimes we would do this thing, well, I guess I kind of made it up where someone would say the, um, their name and we would let the name bounce off all the walls and then everyone <laughs> would repeat it. And then we go to the next person. So there'd be this really nice pause between the names. <laughs> Throughout our conversation, you repeatedly talk about recognition. This concept seems fundamental. What does it mean to recognize the other? Is it to be as present as possible in that moment with the other person? It means being as present as possible with yourself first. Then you notice how there is a place where you seem to end and that leads you to a more vital place. Really meeting the other is like meeting your death. Just as you reach the fullness of your life at your death, you reach the fullness of you when you meet the other. And the kind of understanding that we are working towards in this class is not an understanding that one person can have by herself. This kind of understanding is something that you do with other people. It's something that happens between people and the stories themselves as conversations are modeling this. I think that's really important. Yeah, and I, I keep remembering that, that Peg has, has said many times, remember the koans are about relationships. And that seems to be, isn't that the same thing that he's saying? This seems to, I mean, that's part of what this is saying, but um, it seems to be saying, uh, or what I seem to be understanding is that um, one needs to really have uh, presence to oneself first and it's only um, with that foundation that it's possible to genuinely meet the other. Thank you. I, that's, I like that. Um, how would you differentiate these stories? these koan cases from the one-line puzzles. If everything returns to the one, to what does one return? Or does a dog have Buddha nature? Aren't those what people generally call koans? Let's look at how a conversation between a teacher and a student might become a story. When a monk would come to a teacher, the teacher would ask, what's your name? Where are you from? How long have you been practicing? Then the teacher would give the monk instruction. After giving that instruction, either right away or later, the teacher would say, what's been happening with that instruction I gave you? If the monk had an answer that other people witnessed, or that was interesting enough so that the teacher or the student mentioned it to somebody, then the record of that interaction would become a story. The one-line koan that you were talking about would be the instruction insinuated in the middle of that story. So the one line koan is the key sentence in the story. Let's take the mukoan. The story is a record of a conversation that actually happened. A monk asked the teacher, does the dog have Buddha nature or not, Mu? And the teacher said, Mu. Later the monk asked, does the dog have Buddha nature or not? And the teacher said, yes, it does. The Book of Serenity has both of those stories. So the story has nothing to do with whether a dog has Buddha nature or not. And Mu has nothing to do uh, whether you have it or not. Buddha nature is not something you have or don't have, right? But you work, your, uh, you work with this dynamic of existence and non-existence around this koan. A teacher may assign you to the... Um, a teacher may assign you the mukon when you go for instruction, when you are actually meditating. It's easier to work if you just pick up pick one character. 
Usually in the case sentence of a story, there is a pivot, a particular point in the sentence, which is the best place to concentrate on that sentence. The pivotal character or head word vato is at the beginning or end of the sentence. The vato in the sentence. Does the dog have Buddha nature or not? Is Mu not? So you uh, study the whole story and then you focus on this one character. As you focus, you start to feel the context of this character, which is the dependent co-arising of the word Mu. They use Mu to zero in one of a fundamental question. Uh, do we have or not have enlightened nature? Are we awake or not? But you know the story around it, and the story around it is the entire universe. Does that help? I mean, does this whole deal help in your understanding? It doesn't mind. No one's going to answer? Yes. Well, some of it definitely helped and some of it made me more puzzled, but I think it's also normal. It's good. That's good to be puzzled, isn't it? <laughs> yes. That's a lot to take in. Yes, I think there is there is a, a, a lot of information packed. <laughs> Is it possible to um to to send a link to this to the chat, Kim? Sure, of course. Um, because I, I feels like this is something that I would like to just like sit with certain pieces of it. And poor dog, I cannot read about this dog anymore. <laughs> I will skip this part. Okay. So let's, let's, for September, January 8th, let's see if I can find um, the next koan. And I found it. Yay. And you guys see it, right? Yes. Okay. Who would like to read it? I'll do. Okay. The case, right? Yes. Attendant for asked Dushan, where have all the past saints gone? Dushan said, what, what? Wo said, I gave the command for an excellent horse like a flying dragon to spring forth, but there came out only a lame tortoise. Uh, how do you say that? Tortoise. Tortoise. Shan was silent. The next day, when Shan came out of the bath, Hua served him tea. Shan passed his hand gently over the Hua's back, over Hua's back. Hua said, This old fellow has gotten a glimpse for the first time. Again, Shan was silent. Is this our Christmas present? <laughs> <laughs> Are we supposed to read it again? Like uh, Sure. Who would like to read it again? Well, I can read it, but okay. if you want to read it in the male voice. 
I don't know what we do. Like, uh, case attendant who asked the Shan, where have all the past saints gone? The Shan said, what, what? Who said, I gave the command for an excellent horse, like a flying dragon to spring forth. But there came out only a lame tortoise. Dushan was silent. The next day, then Dushan came out of the bath, who served him tea. Dushan passed his hand gently over Hu's back. Hu said, This old fellow has gotten a glimpse for the first time. Again, Dushan was silent. I think I need more context to this. <laughs> this is like. <laughs> Sounds like sexual harassment to me, but what do I know about the <laughs> masters and they and they attendance? Well, this is it for 2023 depth and practice. So thank, thank you. you all for sticking with it. Holidays. Thank A you. wonderful holiday. You guys have a grand, wonderful uh, weeks, two weeks. Thank Bye. you all. Bye. Bye. Good night. <laughs>